Throughout the year, we celebrate a number of feasts of the Most Blessed Virgin Mary. And some of these feasts are very great feast days. They are even holy days of obligation, such as the Feast of the Immaculate Conception or the Feast of the Assumption. Uh, Other great feasts of Our Lady that are not holy days that we celebrate are the Feast of the Seven Sorrows, the Divine Maternity of Our Lady on October 11th, the Feast of the Holy Rosary October 7th. But then there are a number of Feasts of Our Lady that are not celebrated on what we call the Universal Calendar of the Church. That would be what's contained in your the Roman Catholic calendar that we should all have. Um, a number of feasts there that we don't see there. These feasts are celebrated in certain dioceses around the world only. Like, for example, in Spain, they celebrate the Feast of Our Lady of the Pillar every year on October the 12th. In Mexico, they celebrate on December 12th the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. But there is another feast day, among others, that is not celebrated on the universal calendar of the church. And nonetheless, it is a feast of Our Lady, and it is January the 23rd. And January the 23rd is the Feast of the Espousals of the Blessed Virgin Mary. It's the feast that commemorates the actual day on which Our Lady was married to St. Joseph. It is said that they were formally engaged or betrothed to one another the previous November. In fact, a certain author recounts a very ancient tradition in regard to how St. Joseph and Our Lady came together. First, you must understand that Our Lady had been living in the temple of Jerusalem. Since she was three years of age, her parents, St. Anne and St. Joachim, brought her to the temple when she was three years old, gave her to God. And she lived there in the temple with other young women. And there they performed their duties, they studied scripture, they spent their time in prayer, and they served God in the temple. But when Our Lady came to the age of marrying, which then was 15, They started considering marriage. And everybody got married. Everyone was married. So when she came to the age of marrying, it was the duty of the high priest to find a suitable husband for her and the other young girls who were serving in the temple. And what happened was this High priest, under a divine inspiration, says the ancient tradition here, seeing that she was a most special person, and knowing that she was a descendant of King David, he summoned all the unmarried men of the house of David 
to, on a certain day, come to the temple and bring with them a rod or like a walking staff and put their name on it. And whosever staff would bloom flowers would be the one that God had chosen for this very special young woman in the temple. And according to this tradition, it was St. Joseph's rod that actually bloomed lilies. And the high priest gave her to St. Joseph in an official ceremony of betrothal. That's why sometimes you see images of St. Joseph. He's holding a rod with lilies in it, recounting that tradition. It was a few months later then, January the 23rd, as I mentioned, that Our Lady was married to St. Joseph. The nuptials were solemnized in the temple itself, and according to the law and practice at the time, the high priest himself, God's representative on earth at that time, uh, joined them together in holy matrimony. And they bound themselves to each other in a most holy, pure, and perfectly chaste marriage. St. Joseph actually placed a ring upon her finger. In fact, this ring is preserved today in the Cathedral of San Lorenzo in Perugia, Italy. In 1857, Pope Pius IX When he was in Perugia, he actually paid public veneration to this relic. But after the sacred ceremony ended, as was the custom, St. Joseph and Our Lady retired from the temple in the midst of their relatives and friends uh, in a procession that included music and the waving of palm branches. And this tradition states they processed to the house of Joachim and Anne, which was now Our Lady's house in Jerusalem. And soon after this, they left Jerusalem and made their home in Nazareth. And then it was two months later, March the 25th, that memorable March the 25th, when God sent the archangel Gabriel to Nazareth, to her, to ask her if she would consent to be the mother of God. We can say that when St. Joseph married the most blessed Virgin Mary, he received from God the Father for a dowry, a heart more perfect, more pure than that of all the angels a heart full of virtues and supernatural gifts, a heart full of the love of God. So that of all the marriages, not only was that of Joseph and Mary the most holy and perfect, but they had a union of heart that was closer than ever was in any other marriage. In other words, no two hearts could have been more united than the hearts of Mary and Joseph. I should say with one exception. 
the hearts of Jesus and Mary is the closest union of hearts you will ever have. And after that, Joseph and Mary. Our Lady was truly married to St. Joseph, even though she had the vow of virginity, and they lived a most perfectly chaste marriage. She was truly married to him. She was truly under his guidance. She was under his care. She was in his protective hands. And she loved him with a most pure, most chaste love. She trusted him. She was subject to him. And she really and truly was of the same mind and heart with him at all times. The most blessed Virgin Mary is indeed the holiest. She is the purest. She is the greatest of all God's creatures. She is, as Bishop Kelly used to often say from the pulpit, human nature's solitary boast. Last month, uh, when I was at St. Pius V Chapel, I was talking about Our Lady. I believe it was it was Mother's Day, and I mentioned how when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush on Mount Sinai, He commanded Moses to remove his sandals because the ground upon which he stood was holy ground. And it was holy because of the presence of God in the burning bush. And I mentioned that if common, ordinary dirt can be made holy on account of God's presence in a bush, how much more holy must be the most blessed Virgin Mary? in whom the Son of God was made man, and in whom he dwelt for nine months. Furthermore, how holy she must be if the angels of heaven, who by nature are superior to her, by nature. The angelic nature is superior to the human nature. But how holy she must be if she commands them and they bow down to her, they reverence her, they obey her. And just considering that her very name, Mary, is enough to cause Lucifer, who was the greatest of all the angels, he was the most powerful angel God created, But her name is enough to cause him to tremble and to even run like a frightened child when he hears it. There's that remarkable story that St. Louis de Montfort records in his book, The Secret of the Rosary, how St. Dominic, through whom she gave us her holy rosary, St. Dominic, was exercising the devil out of a man. And it turns out the man was possessed by 15,000 devils. 
And when St. Dominic was commanding him to leave, he would not leave. They would not leave. They scoffed at him. And then by an extraordinary occurrence, Our Lady appeared beside him, the possessed man. And she said, how dare you not obey my servant Dominic? And then St. Dominic ordered the people who were watching this to start praying the rosary. They prayed to 15 decades of the rosary. And at every Hail Mary, I believe 100 demons flew out of this man. St. Louis de Montfort says he reports that on good authority in the lifetime of St. Dominic. But that's just one case of how much the demons fear her. St. Alphonsus even says that the devil would not even tempt her during life. He stayed away from her. Now, I tell you this because I, I want you to love and honor and praise Our Lady. But in addition, I'm telling you this because I want you to consider something. How holy... And how virtuous St. Joseph must have been if God the Father would entrust to him the purest and holiest of all his creatures. He would put her into his hands. None, none, not, uh, not to mention as well, of course, that God would entrust his eternal son made man, our Lord Jesus Christ, to St. Joseph. How holy St. Joseph was. How holy he is. That God would give our Lord and our Lady to him. He is so holy that after the most blessed Virgin Mary, he is the greatest saint in heaven. This is the opinion of St. Francis de Sales, St. Alphonsus de Ligores, St. Teresa of Avila, Pope Leo XIII, Bishop Joseph Santang, and a host of theologians. You know, during his earthly life, he loved Our Lady so much, he respected her, he reverenced her. And on account of his pure love for her, he was truly devoted to her. Yes, he was the head of the Holy House of Nazareth. And she was truly subject to him. She was subject to his authority in the house. But he was devoted to her. His life was all about her. And then, of course, when our Lord came, it was all about him and her. His life was all about loving and serving his Lord and his lady. Period. And both of them were subject to him. That is why the Holy Family is the ideal of how every Catholic family should be. The husband is the authority in the house. But at the same time, he is devoted, singularly devoted to his wife and his children. But it was because of Mary 
that St. Joseph had an intimate union with and a relation to our divine Savior. It's because of her that he had such a union with Christ. In other words, because he was her true spouse, he was the foster father of Christ. Because he was her guardian and protector, he was the guardian and protector of Christ. Because he was so close to her and so united in mind and heart to her, he was close to Christ and united in mind and heart to Christ. And thus there can be no doubt that because of Mary, St. Joseph's own sanctity increased every day. In other words, because of his union with her, God bestowed upon him more graces, more merits, and a degree of of holiness that was second only to Our Lady herself. Through her, his faith was increased. Through her, his charity more inflamed and more sweetened. Through her, his patience was perfected and his humility ever deepened. And through her, his purity and his chastity became even more sacred. That is why the church calls him the chaste guardian of the virgin. St. Joseph truly loved Mary and was devoted to her. And his love for her, his devotion to her, obtained for him from God many, many more graces and blessings. You know, we often are led to believe that St. John the Apostle was the first devotee of Our Lady, the first to have devotion to Our Lady. Why? Because our Lord gave her to St. John beneath the cross. Right? St. Joseph was actually the first to practice devotion, so to speak, to Our Lady. I've been often asked, why? was St. Joseph, why did he have to die before the passion and death of Christ? Because, you know, he died nine months before our Lord began his public life. Nine months before. March 19th, he died on that day. Nine months later, our Lord left Nazareth and went to Judea to begin his public life. So people ask, why did he have to die? We sometimes get the wrong impression from certain artists that St. Joseph was a very old man. You know, sometimes there are some who actually have certain uh, people who in, the, in some books you read, they say that like he was like 75 when he married Our Lady. That's not true. A 75-year-old man is not taking a young woman and a child to Egypt. Right? He was a young man. Ah, yes, older than her. Some believe he was probably about 
25, 30 years of age. She was about 15, 16 when they got married, and he was like 30 maybe. That was not uncommon then. He was a young man. He was still a young man, relatively speaking, when he died. The question is why? And there is an answer to that question. And the answer is this. St. Joseph's vocation was to hide Christ. It was to keep him hidden from the world. And once our Lord was beginning his public life, his vocation was over. And who picked up from there? St. John the Baptist, who is the precursor, whose vocation was to proclaim Christ to Israel and then to the whole world. So St. Joseph's vocation being done, he had to be, as it were, he was done. His part in the, in the story of Christ was now over. Because you can be sure, when Christ's passion and death began, he would have been with Our Lady. He would have been beneath that cross with her the entire time. But God's ways are not our way. God had a purpose. And St. Joseph was removed and St. John was there. And who does St. John represent when our Lord, dying on the cross, gave her to to St. John? He represents all of us. She was given to us to be our mother. If we will live good Catholic lives, if we will live virtuous lives that God commands us to live, if we will grow in faith, if we will increase in our charity towards our fellow men, if we will practice an undaunted patience in the darkest of trials, if we will be pure and chaste according to our state in life, if we will be holy and become the saints that God is calling us to be, then we must love Mary. We must, like St. Joseph, have a true and a constant devotion to her. For all of us are called to be saints. Sanctity is not just for the priests and the religious. They have to become saints. Everybody is called to be a saint. Whether you're in the single state, the married state, priesthood or religious, you are called to be a saint according to your state in life. And if we will do this, we must have a true and constant devotion to Mary. Not what I'll call a fly-by-night thing. We call on her when we need her or when it's convenient for us. That's every day. And some day, some way, we profess our love and devotion to her. Devotion to Our Lady is not something that is just a nice thing to do. One of those nice devotions, you know, that you know makes our hair stand up on the back of our neck sometimes. Or some feel-good, emotion-stirring activity exercise that we engage in. Devotion to Mary is absolutely essential for our living a good Catholic life, for our growth in holiness, and let alone 
for the salvation of our souls. I'll never forget, I probably mentioned this in the past in conferences, perhaps, but I'll never forget one of our priests years ago was talking to a, a Protestant minister. And they got onto the discussion of Our Lady. And the man, like, kind of threw his arms up. He said to this priest, What do you see in that little Jewish girl? The answer to the question is, we see everything as it were. We see Christ in her. We see our link to Christ. That's what we see in Mary. One of the greatest devastating effects of the Protestant Reformation was they threw devotion to Our Lady away. They took her away. The devil took her away from the minds and hearts of Catholic people. They don't need her. But the truth is, without her, without her, we cannot reach Christ. For as St. Louis de Montfort says, it is through Jesus, it is through Mary that we will come to Jesus. So we must live our lives as it were, mixed up with Mary, like St. Joseph. We must have her in our life. We must have her, we must live in her company, as it were. As a certain Carmelite priest put it, we must live the Marian life. And the Marian life, it means, generally speaking, two things. Prayer and devotion to Our Lady and imitating her virtue. So first of all, I want to talk about prayers and devotions to Our Lady. Even though I'm confident that all of us have some kind of devotion to Our Lady that we practice. There are numerous vocal prayers that can be said. There are various devotions to Our Lady under one of her many titles, Our Lady of Mount Carmel, Our Lady of Sorrows, um, our, the Immaculate Conception, the Immaculate Heart of Mary. But I thought I would make a few suggestions that will help foster and increase the influence of Our Lady in our own personal lives. And the first is this. 15 minutes of meditation on some mystery in the life of Our Lady. And we have the meditation books that we do here after the conferences. Uh, there's a beautiful book of meditations published by the sisters that have a number of meditations on some aspect of Our Lady's life. Spending 15 minutes with her. I know we can't possibly do this every day. Or maybe on a Saturday, or maybe the first Saturdays of the month, like today. And considering, thinking over the mystery of the Annunciation, the birth of Christ, her part in it, focusing on her, focusing on her charity, her patience, her kindness. The second practice is 
praying the rosary every day. Now, <clears throat> how many times you hear us pray stuff at the pulpit say, pray the rosary, right? It's getting to the point perhaps we say, roger that, <laughs> right? Pray the rosary. We say it all the time. But you know what? We really mean it. We're not just throwing that out there because we know that is her, that is her favorite devotion, the Holy Rosary. Uh, if you've not read St. Louis de Montfort's very short book called The Secret of the Rosary, easily obtainable, The Secret of the Rosary, read that book. You cannot not be convinced to pray the rosary every day. Of what he writes about the rosary and the power of the rosary, where he even says, if you have one foot in hell... And yet you pray that rosary every day for love of Our Lady. She will somehow, some way, she will obtain for you a grace of conversion before your death. If you pray it every day, he says. If you are a husband and father and you have children in the home, uh, especially the small children, foster that habit in them of praying the rosary every day. Thirdly is wear the brown scapular. Right? That's, that's an easy one, right? We wear the brown scapular. Uh, here's something perhaps you've never thought of. Have an image that is a picture or statue of her in your home or on your person that you salute each day. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. St. Bernard of Clairvaux lived in the early 12th century. And in a particular monastery he lived, there was a statue of Our Lady in the long corridor. And every time he passed it, he would stop for a moment And he would say, Hail Mary. And then he would go on. And when he'd come back down that corridor, he'd stop again. Hail Mary. And he'd bow his head. And then he'd go. One day, after he said those words, Hail Mary, statue of Our Lady, came to life as it were. Our Lady appeared over the statue. She said, Hail Bernard. Now, that's not why we want to salute. <laughs> you know, we're not looking for that, of course. But that practice, that little practice of, say, for example, you have an image of Our Lady, of a picture or a small statue, and every, every morning when you leave for work or you start your day, And then every evening when you end your day, you say Hail Mary in front of it. You salute her. In the morning, it's like hugging your mother goodbye. (laughs) We haven't done that in a while, right? In the evening, it's hugging her goodnight. But it's showing her a special devotion. This Carmelite priest says that we can have that picture before us The idea is we take it before us in our minds throughout our whole day. 
the more we are accustomed to having the image of Our Lady, we put it in our minds so that she's with us, as it were, all day. And it helps us to raise our mind and heart to Our Lady throughout our day. We can't constantly be thinking about God and the Most Blessed Virgin, but there are times throughout our day that we can give a small moment of like, my Jesus, mercy, Mary, help me, something. Sometimes people... Uh, ask me, you know, we say all these prayers to Our Lady, but how come we still have to suffer? How come she doesn't take it away? How come we still have to carry all these crosses? Well, Our Lady comes to our assistance. The more we are devoted to her, the more she will be devoted to us. But that does not mean She's going to take away our cross. That does not mean she's going to stop bodily pain, disease, contradictions going against us in some way. And she won't do this because she knows it's good for us. And when you think about it, she stood beneath the cross for those three hours. She did not leave, and she did not ask it to be taken away. She stood there faithfully, and she suffered with and for Christ. She watched him suffer and die in a torment and a pain of body that no one here will ever experience. And an abandonment of soul. And all of this she did there, and not for a single moment did she ask for that cross to be taken away. No, she asked to suffer with Christ. And the more we love her and are devoted to her, we too, ideally, will want to be like her and want to suffer with Christ. We'll want to take up our cross and follow him. And as I mentioned this morning, St. Joseph's life, when he got, as it were, mixed up with Our Lady and then with Our Lord, his life became characterized by suffering, by hardship. He was made to endure the most extraordinary hardship and suffering. And if we are going to love Christ and follow him like Mary and Joseph, we're going to have to suffer in some way. But let us all have some favorite image of Our Lady. Whether it's a small picture or a small statue or whatever, that we salute. That we salute as, as if our own special little devotion here so that our heart will be more one with her heart. St. Joseph didn't have any images or statues. He had her, and he saluted her every day. Uh, Here's another practice that is not too common in our day. 
It's to offer a mass that we are attending and receive a holy communion in honor of her. This we can do especially on her feast days. When we attend that Mass, we can offer this Mass to her. We can offer our communion in honor of her. We can offer our communion in thanksgiving to God for giving her to us. Or we can go a step further. We can ask a priest or a bishop to actually offer a Mass on one of her feast days in her honor and in thanksgiving for some favor she has obtained for us or to obtain some favor from her. And finally, the last devotion I would recommend, if possible, is the communion of reparation on the first Saturdays of the month. This is relatively a new practice. This is a new devotion, relatively speaking. It's hardly a hundred years old at that. It was introduced by Our Lady herself at Fatima. And it's something that is actually very important to her. And why is it so important to her? It's important to her because, as she explained to Lucia, that she has obtained from her divine son by the means of the communion of reparation the promise of many graces for the conversion of sinners. Poor sinners are her children just as much as we are. They are her wayward children, but children whom she loves very much. And because he loves them very much, our divine Savior, because he loves them very much and died for them, she loves them very much. Remember, it was July 1917 that she opened up the earth and she showed hell to the children of Fatima so that they would know just how serious this is. Lucia described it in her official memoirs as she compared what she saw. She saw souls falling into hell and she compared it to snowflakes falling from the sky onto the ground. And she actually said it was like a snowstorm. The snow was just, the souls were just falling, she said. Now, I don't want to sound like a pessimist, but it sure seems to me that this snowstorm is really raging now. But Our Lady wants to save these souls. She wants to save them, so she went to our Lord and she asked him if he would promise to give graces for the conversion of poor sinners for this new devotion that she wanted to establish in his honor, Holy Communion of Reparation. 
And he said yes. Because he won't deny her anything. How happy she was to come to Fatima with a message of hope for us and for all poor sinners. But you have to understand, sometimes people say, well, can't, if she just says, well, save them, won't he just do it? And then we don't have to do anything, right? You have to understand in the present economy of eternal salvation, graces must be bought. They must be purchased. And by the means of the communion of reparation, this new devotion, Our Lady has bought, as it were, new graces, more graces for the salvation of sinners. But she asks us to perform the work. How then do we make this communion of reparation according to the request of the Lady? Here is how you correctly make the communion of reparation. I, I, I stress this because it's not a matter of just going to Mass on the first Saturday and receiving communion. It's more than that. The communion of reparation, as Our Lady has asked for it, is made in this way. Receiving, first of all, Holy Communion on the first Saturdays of five consecutive months. Receiving Communion on the first Saturday of five consecutive months. Secondly, it is going to confession on that day or eight days before or eight days later. Up to eight days later. Up to eight days before, up to eight days after. Thirdly, praying five decades of the rosary sometime that day. And the fourth requirement she made is spending, she said, 15 minutes with me. What does that mean in the practical order? Spending 15 minutes with Our Lady. It means this. I mentioned meditation already. It is meditating for 15 minutes on one mystery or some mysteries of the rosary. Taking some mystery, say for example, the crowning with thorns, the third sorrowful mystery, and meditating on it. Telling yourself the story. Here's what I see. You see Christ there being crowned with thorns and making acts of love to Christ and to Our Lady for 15 minutes. I suggest we do something like that if we're making the first Saturdays. We can do that 15-minute meditation before Mass. And finally, all of this The communion, the confession, the rosary, the meditation, all of it is done in reparation to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. That is how you make the communion of reparation. 
if you are privileged to have daily mass at your chapel, and especially the first Saturdays, why wouldn't we do this? Five Saturdays. Why wouldn't we do this at least once a year? I understand that some of us here do not have Mass on the first Saturday. You cannot do this devotion. You do not have Mass on the first Saturdays or Holy Communion. But you can have the utmost confidence. Our Lady knows. But she will be pleased if you offer a rosary anyway for her intentions on that day. But unless it's physically or perhaps morally impossible, why wouldn't we want to do this? Yes, it's certainly. God is not unreasonable. She is not unreasonable. It can be impossible. There can be sickness. There can be emergencies that come up, whatever. Other very serious obligations that take us away. Our Lady knows. But she has asked for this. And it is true, many people I have seen in our chapels around the country have responded to this and have made that communion of reparation. And I would remind you, we may not see, well, is this even doing any good, we may ask ourselves. That's not up to us to ask. We're doing the work, we're giving it to her. But you know what? There are some times that people convert from lives of sin. People all of a sudden show up at our chapels. You would least suspect. Why? Where did that grace come from? How did they all of a sudden change their life in a 180 degree turn? Somebody got them that grace. And I have no doubt the graces obtained for the communion of reparation are making a difference. We just may not see it. We don't need to see it. We just need to trust Our Lady and she will take care of it. The communion of reparation can never really be done. We do it once and we're done with it. It can't be. That's why I would suggest if it is at all possible once a year, Once a year, make the sacrifice five Saturdays a year. Give to her. And, you know, you can offer as getting out of bed early. Maybe Saturdays are one day to sleep in, you know, to, (coughs) excuse me, offer that to her too. It counts for something. You know, I knew a gentleman. I mentioned Durango, Colorado this morning. We had a gentleman there. He was about 90. He just died this past year. I had told Father Krug I was looking forward. The last time I was in Durango was 2006, the last time I got out there. And there was a gentleman there. He was one of the original members of this chapel that was actually started by Father Francis Fenton in the 1970s. And 
we had talked, and he was a good man, and he was very supportive of Immaculate Heart Seminary. And uh, when I went there in 2006, um, we went out to dinner after Mass, and uh, we were talking about things, and, you know, he was very sad that they, they only had a priest once a month of that, you know. And uh, he actually uh, had talked about, uh, we started talking about our, our devotion to Our Lady. And he told me that living in Durango, he said as a young man, he had never done the five Saturdays. So he told me, he knew, he said before he died, he said, I wanted to do this. So I said, well, what did you do? He said, I drove five consecutive Saturdays from Durango to Great Falls, Montana, where Father Martin Skirky has our Immaculate Heart of Mary Church there. That's a 15-hour drive one way. And he did it because he was He said, I was not going to die before I first honored her request. Now, I'm not suggesting that somebody drive 15 hours, all right? Because I don't want to get blamed when you get a speeding ticket. (laughs) I'm not suggesting. I'm just pointing out to you how much this man, and he, he had tears in his eyes as he's telling me how much he loved Mary. How much he loved her. He said, I have to do this for her. I'm just pointing this out to show you an example of how much we should love Mary. And if we can, if it's physically, I'm not asking you, Our Lady would not ask you to drive 15 hours. If we can physically, morally, physically make the communion of reparation, why wouldn't we do this? She asked for it. The second thing I want to talk to you about is imitation of Mary, imitating her virtues. No one is closer to Christ than Mary. And thus, after Christ, she is the model to follow, and after her is St. Joseph. For St. Joseph's many virtues were made even more perfect. His high degree of sanctity was increased even more because of her. There's one thing I would present to you to imitate in her. It's something that I've already said. Because if you persevere in doing this, you can and will become holy. And what did I already say? Have a humble, patient resignation and acceptance of God's will in everything. I was going on about that this morning. See God's will in everything. And humbly, patiently, obediently resign yourself and accept it. Whether it is a joy or a sorrow, whether it is agreeable or disagreeable, we bless God all the same for it. Why do I keep bringing this up? Why do I sound like a broken record with this? Because I know 
what true holiness consists in. True holiness and sanctity is not necessarily going to as many masses as we can go to, saying as many vocal prayers as we can. Don't get me wrong, those are powerful means to help us become holy, but that's not what holiness is. True holiness consists in the union of our will with the will of God. Willing what God wills. I mean, isn't that what love is? Love is a union of wills. When two people truly and really love each other, Their wills are united. They will the same thing. And when our will is truly, perfectly united to God, we will what he wills. And if it's sickness, if it's contradiction in some way, if it's hardship, if it's difficulty that comes upon us, we take it. I'm not saying we like it. But we accept it because it's from him. That was what her whole life was all about. When the archangel Gabriel presented her with God's request that she become the mother of God, she said, fiat, that Latin word which means be it done according to thy word. Fiat, she said. And that fiat was her whole life. Whatever God's will was, she said, be it done. That has to be our life. That is why I talk about that so much. Because that is what holiness consists in. A patient, humble acceptance of whatever God wills. We take it. Someone once said to me, well, does that mean if somebody comes over to me and, and punches me in the face that God willed that? I said, all right, trying to play tricks here, right? God does not will sin. Does not will sin. To even suggest that would be blasphemy. But when we understand God's will, our finite minds, our limited reason to try to understand God, who is beyond all reason, God's all-permissive will, he allows things to happen. He allows people to use their free wills to even sin. Doesn't tell them they can do this, but he allows it because he doesn't interfere with free will. So if somebody comes and punches us, he has a, what he wills is our patience. What he wills is our, uh, our patient acceptance. It doesn't mean we can't defend ourselves either, though. All right? I'm not saying that either. Right? Right? But no matter what happens, everything ultimately is allowed by him in some way. It's interesting to note that uh, St. Elizabeth of Hungary, like St. Bridget of Sweden, was favored with the extraordinary grace of having Our Lady come down from heaven and visit with her and speak to one another as two friends, having a little visit. 
One particular day, when St. Elizabeth was talking to Our Lady, they were talking about her grace and her virtues and how holy Our Lady is. And St. Elizabeth, though, said to Our Lady, something I wouldn't dream of saying, but said to Our Lady, but my Lady, wast thou not full of grace and virtue? By these words, she meant it was easy for you. God gave you so many graces. You are full of grace. You are the gratia plena, full of grace. It was easy for you to be good. It was easy for you to be holy. Listen to what Our Lady said to St. Elizabeth in response. As recorded by St. Alphonsus in his glorious book, The Glories of Mary. Dost thou think that I possessed grace and virtue without effort? Dost thou think, she said, that I possessed grace and virtue without effort? No, she said to St. Elizabeth, I obtained no grace from God without great effort, constant prayer, ardent desire, and many tears and mortifications. Great effort, constant prayer, ardent desire, and penance. Our Lady, Our Lady did her part. She just was not ipso facto made holy, and that was the end of the story. And she didn't suffer. She didn't have to go through a wind. She did. She did. If the Mother of God, the most highly blessed and singularly favored, prayed and made great efforts to practice virtue, can we expect to do anything less? She too had her sufferings. She had her difficulties. How we too then must also pray and make generous efforts to practice virtue each day of our life. Looking to her and St. Joseph as those models of patience and of resignation and loving acceptance of God's will. When the new works of your life are made manifest to you, it's God's will. And if we persevere in our prayers and devotions to her, and we really and truly strive to imitate her resignation to God's will, acceptance of God's will, we can have the utmost confidence that we will grow in virtue and we can and will become the saints that God is calling us to be.